And thank you, Matt, and our worship team on both floors. And I want to add my good morning and welcome. And I can't think of a more perfect song to lead us into a continuation of worship this morning. A wonder really and truly and practically and functionally, what would it really look like if we actually understood and believed that God loved us? I don't mean that God tolerates us or simply finds time for us when he can. I don't mean that. Well, what would it be like if we really internalized into the depth of our being that the sovereign creator of the cosmos loves us more completely than we can ever fathom? Many of us, if not all of us, have probably been in church for a while, and the, the somewhat unfortunately familiar, fatigued phrase, God loves us, has really sort of lost its salt. but he loves us. His hands didn't falter or shake. The word that we are told that God made you and me is not that he just spoke the word. It's that he fashioned us with like his fingers. He loves us. But candidly, many of us sort of fall into this rut that for us, God loves us sort of means, yeah, I know I'm going to go to heaven one day when I die. And in the meantime, I have to go to church and try to be good so that God will give me some good stuff and not kick me out one day. That's about the furthest thing imaginable from what it actually means that God loves us. No, God loves us. And he has literally done all that he possibly can to save us. Did you know that? Do you know that, really? God's salvation is astonishing. We sing it this morning. It is amazing grace. In fact, beyond Christ, not even God can go. Do you know that? There's literally nothing more that God could do. He sent his self, his second self, the second member of the Trinity, the son. He sent his own son. So that's gonna set us up for our big idea for the morning, and I've sort of already spoiled the punchline, but it's very simple, and it goes like this. God loves me. Now, we don't do this often because we're a Bible church, and we're afraid of motion and sound. <laughs> but I want you to say that with me on three. One, two, three. God loves me. And you should practice that. And you should instill that into your kids and your parents and your neighbors and your spouses. They should hear that from you with great frequency. God loves me. God loves me. I don't know what kind of week you've had. I know the kind of week some of you have had. And it's good to be reminded that God loves me. Now, if you're an apostle, how would you tell people that? If you're the apostle Paul, how would you get that critical, crucial message across? This morning, we're gonna look at the definitive text where the apostle Paul tells his readers, and by extension, us, precisely that, that God loves us. Whatever is going on in your life, I can promise you, this is the most important thing you and I could possibly hear and receive. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm gonna invite you to go to Ephesians chapter one. As Mike said, we're in the book of Ephesians. It's our second Sunday in this sermon series. Ephesians chapter one, I'm gonna read 
Ephesians chapter one. I'm gonna read this entire passage, verses three to 14. And I want you to read along if you're comfortable doing that or just let it wash over you. And then we'll come back and unpack it and see how we apply this. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three. The apostle writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the whole or the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." This is God's word. I'm going to say this and I'm going to stand by it. It's the greatest passage in the Bible. It's the most important sentence that has ever been written in human history. By the way, verses three to 14, it's really just one very long sentence. Poly preposition, don't know when to stop. It's just one great long explosion of praise for who God is and what he has done. It's 220 words long. I don't know if you memorize scripture or not, but if you've ever wondered what would I want to have resting on my heart, mind, soul, body, and relational self, it's this passage. I challenge you to know this text, to memorize it. In fact, we'll be, Lord willing, in the book of Ephesians through May 2nd of this year. I would challenge all of us to have this passage memorized by the time we get to May 2nd. Even if you don't get it and you just try, that'll still be a blessing. It's the greatest text. It is demonstrating the fullness of the Godhead Trinity coming to bear to save all of us. All of God at work for all of us. It's been outlined a whole lot of different ways through the centuries because it's such a cherished cherished passage. You could say it this way. The Father selects. The son sacrifices and the spirit seals. I like that one. Or perhaps you could look at it this way. It is about the father's purpose. It is about the son's provision and the spirit's pledge. We're gonna look at this passage in rapid fire because we could literally spend 15 weeks on it. I'm gonna walk through it as quickly as I can. It's broken into three sections. First, what the father has done in salvation, what the son has done in salvation, what the spirit has done in salvation. So let's start off with, Ephesians chapter one and verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, blessing. Blessing, generally speaking, when we're talking about people to people, has the idea of infusing joy and instilling goodness. But how do you do that to God? How do you instill joy or infuse goodness to God? 
Well, the term blessed here is eugaletos. It's where we get our word for eulogy. It's where we say good things about people who have passed on. We extol the greatness of their deeds and their character and what they're like. And Paul's saying, we should just, you know, like, like praise God for who he is and what he's done. In other words, you know, um, church, it matters massively. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He said good things about us. Yeah, even you. Yeah, even me. He eulogizes us. He infuses us with joy and instills us with goodness. He's the only one in the entirety of the Old Testament that is worthy of blessing. And yet, he has blessed us. How can this be? In Christ. And there it is. One of 27 times in this epistle, we're going to hear about in Christ. It is the most important prepositional phrase in existence. And therefore, I would dare say, as far as a human being is concerned, they are the two most important words in existence, in Christ. And that is your and my identity for all eternity. Hello, my name is Eric in Christ. And the rest of it's just a fairy tale. For all evers in Christ. Paul wants these people in Ephesus and by extension us to understand, you're not in Artemis. You're not really even in Ephesus. You're certainly not in Adam, praise be to God, because in Adam all die. You are in Christ. What does that mean? Glad you asked. We've got the rest of this passage. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, how much blessing do you think God the Father withholds from God the Son? That'd be a huge zero. God the Father withholds no blessing from the Son, and we are the recipients of same. It is incredible. In the heavenly places, in other words, you Ephesians have the tendency to let your eyes fall to material gravity, and you think that it's all about the agora, the marketplace, the shopping mall. It's about the theater, the culture, the economy, the government. No, 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 no. Paul says, this is reality now. In the heavenly places, you are blessed 100% already. In the eternal scope and scheme of things. Remember where Paul is when he writes this? He's blessed us with everything in the heavenly places as he's chained to a Roman soldier in prison in Rome. It doesn't really feel all that blessed. And yet Paul says, my circumstance has nothing to do with my eternal reality. That's super important for all of us to remember. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, or your translation might say just as, or just as, I know this is a little bit Greeky and a little bit geeky, but stick with me for just a second. This is super important, this little conjunction, because remember, it's all just one long sentence. When he says, just as, he's saying, look, our salvation is not just a thing that God does. It's actually rooted in who and what he is as Trinity. Our salvation is a triune action, just as. How did he bless us? Well, it's like the Trinity. It's so big. What Paul's saying. So don't, don't just blow past that just as or as. Just as or even as he chose us. So now we're gonna see this selection of the Father. The Father's selection. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now this is the Father's selection. And I know some of this 
election, predestination stuff makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But listen to what Paul says here. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's astonishing. Before creation, he chose us. In other words, before God said, let there be light, he had already said, let there be life. It's astonishing. In the mind of God, the Christ was crucified before the creation of the cosmos. You don't think God loves you? God loves me. He chose, he elected in him, in Christ, those who would be in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, it's a little bit stranger, this little ending in love. Some people think it goes with the part of verse five. Some people goes with the end of verse four. The answer is yes. Remember, it's just one long sentence. In the context of the overarching thrust and theme of Ephesians, I think it really modifies to be holy and blameless in love. Because let me tell you, the church at Ephesus, we'll find out later, was holy and blameless, not so much love by the time Revelation is written. They'd forgotten their first love. But God's purpose is that we would be holy and blameless in love. Because by the way, that's precisely what the world needs. Not just holy and blameless and self-righteous because of it. Well, I've seen enough of that, thank you very little. What this world needs desperately, what I need, what my wife needs, what your friends and coworkers and neighbors need is for you to be holy and blameless in love. Now, this is amazing language, this holy and blameless. It's Leviticus language. It's Paul saying, it's, it's incredible. This, he chose us. You guys, you guys, you guys, you guys. Paul saying, just like God chose Abraham and Jacob and Isaac to be Israel, just like he chose Moses to be the leader of that, he's chosen us. Not only that, but to be holy and blameless, just like the, the animals sacrificed in Leviticus had to be without blemish and spotless, that's what God has for us. That is language that's only ever used of Jesus. Holy and blameless, the spotless lamb of God. That's what God has chosen us to be. And praise be to God, we need not be sacrificed. No, instead we're living sacrifices, Paul will say in Romans chapter 12. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. It's a great word. It's he predetermined our horizon is literally what it means. He predetermined the horizon. That is the destination. That is the end point. He did not, please understand, you have to do some incredible exegetical gymnastics to make this word mean. He looked through the corridors of time and saw what you were going to do and said, yeah, that'll work. That's not at all what this word means. It means he determined the horizon, your destination, your end terminus. He predestined us for adoption. Now, we need a little bit of assistance understanding what Paul means when he says adoption. The Ephesians did not because they lived in the Roman Empire. They were very familiar with Julius Caesar adopting Octavian and making him son. It was called huiasthesia. I make you son, but not just a child. I make you firstborn male. Now, remember, this is Paul writing to slaves, masters, men, women, Greeks, Jews, everything. God takes people who are enemies outside the covenant-keeping people of God, outside faithfulness, and says, I'm not just going to save you and keep you from burning in hell. No, no, no. I'm not just going to save you from that. I'm going to bring you. I'm not just going to bring you into my home and let you just sort of squat here. Oh, no, no, no. You don't even get to stay in the master bedroom. 
I'm giving you rights of firstborn male son, all of you. I'm adopting you. In other words, when we say God loves me, let this hit all of us with a ton of grace bricks. What is true of the begotten is true of the adopted. With the one exception of deity and divinity, no, you and I will never be God. But what is true of Christ in the fellowship and the, the community of love that is the Trinity is true of us. We have been blessed with it already in the heavenly places. We have been adopted like we were firstborn male sons of the empire. It's an astonishing grace. These people who were, you know, Ephesian. Ugh. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He's the one that made that happen. In Christ, in Christ. That's the whole key of Ephesians, in Christ. Just like when David goes to face down Goliath, it's like all of Israel beat all of the Philistines. All of Israel was in David in that moment. And when Jesus rose again, all of us are in him, alive forevermore. Never to taste separation from God, ever, because we are in Christ according to the purpose of his will. Oh, this has been God's plan all along. Paul's gonna say this over and over again. According to the purpose of his will. This has been his purpose all along from eternity past. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, this little refrain. I think this was probably a hymn that the early church was sort of singing as a theological a recitation, like a responsive reading, kind of like we do with our confession, assurance, and doxology. I think the early church was already reciting this in some sense. And so perhaps as Paul's sitting in prison in Rome, he reminds them of this because of this sort of chorus to the praise of his glorious will, of his glorious grace, with which he has, and the ESV here says, blessed us. Oh, that's nice, but that's not it. Verse six is so huge. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has graced us in the beloved. Now, Paul's doing something incredible here. I don't know what you think about when you think about Mary. You remember Mary, round young virgin? No, that's not what the song actually says. Round yawn virgin. This teenage girl from Nazareth. But when the angel approaches her in the gospel of Luke, he calls her most favored one, Mary, full of grace. And that term is never used anymore for anybody else until right here. <laughs> until right here. Mary, full of grace, most favored one, the one to whom God is going to send Messiah. Ekerason. Paul says, guess what? <laughs> Ephesians, God chooses you as well. You are most favored. You are full of grace. Terms never used again after Mary, until Ephesians 1, 6. God loves me. Well, that's not all, because we've just finished hearing about the Father's selection, the Father's purpose. Now we're gonna read about the Son, the Son's sacrifice and the Son's provision. Beginning in verse seven. In Him, if I haven't stomped enough to make a big deal about this, in Him's like a really big deal. In Christ, it's the title of the sermon. In Him, we have redemption. 
We could spend weeks on this one word alone. It has the idea of being released from the most oppressive slave burden imaginable. Imagine being like on the third level of a slave ship, rowing, being the recipient of all nastiness, torture, pain, suffering, humiliation, and hopelessness. But redemption in this case means you are released from that and sent to be an official in the royal court. It's that kind of redemption. Not just set free. Not just set free. It is apa has a prefix that says, no, no, no. You are sent to a thing that is greater and more glorious. Why would he do that? Because God loves me. And this is true now in the heavenly places. In him, we have redemption through his blood. You see, it was costly. It cost him everything. Cheap grace, oh, my heavens, no. It cost him his very life. God, who cannot die, by definition, did so. Why? For the forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness here is this idea of, will the accused please stand? Here is all of the evidence stacked against you, and it's all correct. You are guilty as sin. I therefore declare you innocent. You're free to go. But all this stuff... It's got to go somewhere. But I love you. I can't just let bygones be bygones. I cannot extend the hand of mercy without the hand of justice also being extended. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my son, who I've experienced perfect community, bliss, harmony, fellowship, joy for all eternity, and I'm going to I'm going to have him pay for all the stuff that you did willfully, blissfully, happily. You're free to go. You are forgiven in him. Into that we have been chosen. He has predestined us for that. Now, look, that all has to wrap together. When Paul says that, it is God's word, God trying to tell us something. And I know it makes some of us uncomfortable or off-put because of denominational heritage or culture or climate or whatever it might be. But let me just offer this quick little illustration to, to try to help out with this. I want you to imagine a little boy, 10 years old, and he's playing just enthusiastically, not a care in the world, no fear, except that he's playing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, right on the very rim. I mean, like, three toes hanging off, and he has no idea. And he's doing little backflips and somersaults, and he's doing wacky jacks and the whole bit, and he's just right there. He has no idea because there's a thick, thick, thick fog. I mean, it's like a stew. It's a clam chowder. He can't see anything, and so he's just playing and playing and playing. He has no idea that right there is certain, brutal, very painful death and separation from life until a wind comes and blows that fog completely away. And suddenly the little boy recognizes, oh, that's certain death. And he, hear me, freely jumps back. Of his own free will, he jumps back. Because how could he not? To do otherwise would be utter foolishness and folly and death. God blows away the fog, the confusion, the lack of clarity, and of his free will, he jumps back. But please understand, the initiator of that clarity is God. That's what we're talking about. We're not having to debate about Calvinism or Armenianism or sovereignty or free will. Shh, it's the gospel, and God loves me. Let me set your minds at ease with one more very emphatic declaration. The Bible knows no person 
in either of these two categories. The person who wants to be saved but isn't, that person does not exist. The person that is saved but doesn't want to be, that person does not exist in any pages of your Bible. So just set your minds at ease when you say, well, what about, what about? No, 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 those people don't exist. Moving on. Verse eight, well, actually with the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, verse seven, not out of the riches, according to the riches of his grace. Well, how much is that? Uh, infinite. I use this illustration all the time. If Bill Gates or Warren Buffett gives me $5, that is out of their wealth. If they give me $50 million, that is according to their wealth. How much has God given me redemption in Christ and forgiveness in Christ according to his glory and grace and his riches? That's incredible of his grace. Now verse eight, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He didn't just sprinkle it on us when he had some time between cutting the grass and microwaving a burrito. No, God loves me. He lavished it. He's prodigal. He's profligate. He's extravagant. He's extreme with how much grace he showers, not just us, that's good, that's important, and that's true. But me, and I know me, that's astonishing and amazing grace. Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, we need a little explanation here. The people of Ephesus did not. In the Roman Empire, coming out of the Greek world, there was what was called the mysterion cults. The idea was that you had to actually be a member of it to be able to go inside and find out what sort of practices were going on in the, the secret worship cult chambers. Someone had to invite you and initiate you so that you could know what was going on inside. That was a mysterion cult. And Paul comes along and says, oh, actually, the ultimate, utter, final mysterion religion is Christianity. And we have been invited in. In fact, we've been chosen according to his will. In Christ, he has initiated us. He has made it known. What is God like? What is God about? Oh, it's Jesus. He himself is the mysterion religion. It's Christianity. And he has invited us in. Now, it's not a secret. All of the clues, all the breadcrumbs existed in the Old Testament, but the lights weren't on yet. The New Testament has to dawn so that even Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, can understand. The great mystery, Jesus himself, is our entrance Verse 10, well, actually, verse, end of verse 9, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate shining of the light. Now, verse 10, candidly, one of, I think, the most incredibly important verses in all of your Bible for the church. Quite candidly, transparently, maybe it is the reason I am a pastor, is Ephesians 1.10. What is the church? What is it doing here? What is it supposed to be about? It's in verse 10. Why would God do all of this? Paul says, as a plan. Bad translation, I'll come back to that in a moment. As a plan or a looking toward or as a preparation for and a pointing to. Come back to that in a moment. For the fullness of time. In other words, the church, what we're in now, is not the fullness of time. This ain't it, y'all. I like Tyler. I, I don't want to be here for all eternity. I kind of like me. I don't... I, but if this is as good as it gets, dear God, help me. No, thank you. I want a fullness of time resurrection body. Not be chubby like Matt. <laughs> as a plan for the fullness of time, which is as yet still to come, to unite all things, to, to put under his headship 
things in heaven and things on earth. Now, here's why this is so important. Paul says, God has done this. This is his purpose. God's purpose, the son's provision. The father's selection, the son's sacrifice. Here's the purpose. So that this would be a preparation, a pointing to the fullness of time, which is as yet to come. This ain't all there is. The word that Paul uses here for ESB translated as plan is hoikonomia. It's where we get our word for economy. Some translations will say it as uh, an administration. The King James translates it as a dispensation. It's a different age in which God operates on the earth differently. Salvation's always by grace through faith in Christ alone, always. But there was an age in the Garden of Eden. Then the fall happened all the way to Noah. And then after Noah, there was a span of time until the Tower of Babel. After that, we have Jews. Israel is born in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through the patriarchs. Then we have the nation of Israel, all the way through until Acts chapter two. And the church is born. It's not the final age. It's preparatory for the age that will come, heaven on earth, the millennial kingdom where Christ literally reigns. And so Paul says, the church matters a lot the church is supposed to be the travel brochure for the kingdom of God. It's not the full kingdom of God. It's here already and not yet. It is as yet still to come. But the church is the travel brochure. It's the, it's the, uh, the glimmer and the glimpse. It's the snapshot of what is as yet to come. It's a really big deal. God was doing this from eternity past according to his purpose and his plan. It's amazing. So that all things ultimately will be united in heaven and things on earth. Then verse 11, in him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now remember, an inheritance does not pass to the recipient until the guarantee maker dies. Paul's very clearly saying, look to the lengths to which God will go. The, the inheritance only goes if the maker of that guarantee dies. In him, we have obtained already in eternity past this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Again, this refrain, this has been God's plan all along. He didn't just react to, uh-oh, Adam did a bad, bad. Uh-oh, now what are we going to do? Nope, this has always been his plan. Triune God inviting those who were outside into his community of love and fellowship. Verse 12, so that, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jewish people, the apostles, Israel, might be to the praise of his glory. And now the spirit. We've seen the father's selection, the son's sacrifice. Now we're going to see the spirit's sealing. Seen the father's uh, purpose, the son's provision. Now the spirit's pledge. Verse 13, in him, that's in Christ, you also, so it was first for the Jews, verse 12, verse 13, now you also, you Gentile believers at the church in Ephesus and by extension all around the world, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, salvation comes by hearing the word. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, again, people in the Roman Empire didn't need this explained to them. We do because we don't operate this way. This was a Roman emperor term. When the Caesar put his seal of something and marked it with his insignia, to break that or to mess with that or to, to vandalize that meant that you were now going to be the recipient of the full weight, might, power, and fury of the entire Roman Empire. The seal was Caesar. You break the seal, it's like you're breaking Caesar. And so you did not do that. And so when Paul says, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, 
It's the third member of the Godhead Trinity himself. He seals us with um, himself. God literally could not be closer to us than he is here and now in this age. That's amazing. We don't want a code of conduct or a rule book or even the, the Ten Commandments. We have the indwelling presence of God himself. That is his sealing. Not only that, we get his pledge. Verse 12, this Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. The word is arabon. It's a, it's a down payment. It's a, it's a wedding ring. That's why we use this when we get engaged. We say, here's a down payment. It's just a little trinket. It's just a, it's an indicator. But more good stuff's coming, baby. And one day it will. It's a down payment that we're going to have more proximity and nearness and relational bliss and blessedness. It's just a down payment. It's the same word that real estate agents use. It's earnest money. No realtor worth his or her salt is gonna waste time if you're not serious. So they ask for some earnest money. It's not for a guy named Ernest who works in the back. No, it's to see if you're serious. And God says, you wanna know how serious I am about you, how much I love you? I'm gonna give you my earnest, my uh, self. I'm gonna put a ring on your finger and it's my spirit. I'm gonna indwell you with my earnest presence. God loves me. He literally could not do anymore. See, this whole sermon, there's been no instruction. You don't have to obey anything. You just get to receive it. And so that finally, after verse 14, leads us to just three very quick points of implication or application. But far be it for me to not give you something to do. I just want you to hear three very quick summary points of application based on Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Number one goes like this. The Father loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We have the tendency to think that God is sort of cranky, disinterested, disappointed, and a little bit ornery, truth be told. And every now and then he just sort of tosses down lightning bolts because, you know, that's fun. But that's cartoons. That's not real. God loves me. The Father loves me so much that he actually sends the Son. Now, I don't know what you think about God when you think about God but I hope that it is. Say this with me. God loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Second point is likened to the first. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. The second member of the Godhead Trinity is not a father. Oh, but he's a big brother. And this big brother is the true, in the Hebrew sense, defender of the family. Even though little brother and sister can be annoying and rebellious and ruckus and button-pushing irritants, the big brother says, I got this one, Dad. Let me go and get them back. At my own expense, at my own cost, I will go and bring back the siblings so that your glory of grace will be made known. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Third point is likened to the first two. The Spirit loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He's a counselor, an advocate, a helper, a guide. He prays on my behalf to the Father in ways that I don't even understand. He corrects my errant selfish prayer. Like an attorney leans over and covers the microphone and goes, I'm sorry, Your Honor, <laughs> he didn't mean that. Here's what, really, here's what he really means. The presence of God indwelling me. 
And remember that Paul writes these words, chained to a Roman soldier, sitting in prison in Rome, to the Ephesians, these people who had started off rioting, chanting down, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now this assembly gathered in Ephesus has become the church to show the manifold wisdom of God. We'll get there in chapter three. So again, I wonder as we conclude, what would it be like if you and I really functionally, practically believed that God loves me? How would that actually change the way you speak to your wife? How would that change the way you think about your husband? If you really believe that God loves me, how would that change the way you deal with your children or your parents? How would that change the way you were a coworker, a neighbor, a community member, a member of a church, an attender of a church? If you really believe that God loves me and not just you, but all the people sitting around you right now. God loves me, and he loves you, and he loves us, and this is very good news. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this greatest of all sentences in human literature, and I pray, God, that not my words by no means, but your word will continue to connect and convey the truth that you have for these, your people. Father, if there is one or more here that does not know you, that knows some things about you, that is still trying to uh, engage in some transactional relationship with you. I pray you will usher them hastily out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and they will be forever found in your son, Jesus, by the working of your Holy Spirit. Father, for the rest of us, would you give us courage to lay down our swords and spears and instead beat them into plowshares to not be characterized in this world as angry evangelicals, but instead to be blameless and holy in love. That is your purpose, that we would be the demonstration of the showplace of your glory and the coming kingdom. I pray this, God, boldly, unless you've got a better idea. And I pray it in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.